This is ReachMD, and you're listening to Closing the Gaps in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, sponsored by Lilly. When it comes to creating treatment plans for non-small cell lung cancer, it's important to know that while certain factors, like whether or not a patient smokes, do impact these decisions, it's based primarily on the stage of the cancer. Which brings us to the focus of today's discussion. How can we ensure that we're accurately diagnosing these patients so that they receive the proper care? Welcome to Closing the Gaps in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle, and joining me to discuss the keys to diagnosing and treating the various stages of non-small cell lung cancer is Dr. Aaron Shank, an assistant professor of medical oncology at the University of Colorado. Dr. Shank, thanks so much for being here today. Glad to be here. So let's just dive right in, Dr. Shank. You know, what would you say are the keys to an accurate diagnostic staging of non-small cell lung cancer, or NSCLC? So I think number one, of course, is finding the cancer as soon as possible. And as a medical oncologist, when someone comes to my office with a new diagnosis of lung cancer, some of the important things that I look for, number one, are a biopsy to tell me what type of lung cancer or non-small cell lung cancer that I'm dealing with. And then number two, what sort of imaging do I have on hand? And then also, it's very important for me to get imaging of the brain. Patients with a new diagnosis of lung cancer, there's a significant proportion of patients who do have brain metastases at diagnosis, and that's important for me to know right away. Now, false positives are an unfortunate reality. So how do you address the issue of false positives in CT-based screening, and what strategies do you recommend to help us really get an accurate diagnosis? That's a great question because this is something patients will, you know, very reasonably ask, you know, what's the likelihood if you find something, it's real. And with the low-dose CT scanning, that CT scan that the patients get is not as detailed as a diagnostic CT scan. So it's more of a quick look rather than a very detailed look. So let's say, let's walk through this for a patient. For example, they have a low-dose CT scan and there's something that needs to have follow-up. And most commonly, all the patient needs is another CT scan, meaning they just need a diagnostic CT scan. So one that's a little more detailed, sometimes with or without contrast, to really get a better sense of what that nodule or what that area of concern was. Sometimes patients will also need a PET scan, which is a more, a different way of looking at nodules because what that PET scan can tell us, if that, if the area on the PET scan of that area of concern is very, very bright, which is sort of the readout of the PET scan, that is more suggestive of a cancer. But if it's not bright, if it kind of looks like the same level of other tissues, then that's more suggestive that it is likely benign. So, of course, the ultimate need is for a biopsy. So, if those additional scans don't give you a clear answer, one to say, no, those are benign, we can just watch that, then a biopsy, of course, is needed. The other piece I would like to put in is that the CT scanners have become much more sophisticated, even the low-dose CT scan, and our ability to understand what exactly these nodules are have also become much better in the years that have followed since the first study that told us these CT scans are helpful in diagnosing patients. And this was, of course, 10 years ago. If you think how advanced your phone was 10 years ago, 
that sort of gives you a sense of how more advanced our CT scans are now. So my hope is moving forward, you know, prospectively that the false pauses will be less of an issue. Still an issue, but less of an issue. Based off of your own experiences, when you're planning treatment for your patients with stages one and stages two non-small cell lung cancer, what's your particular approach? And you know, are there certain considerations that play a role in the decisions that you make? Absolutely. The difference between stage one and stage two often has to do with the size on the scans, how big these tumors look based on the imaging, and also whether or not there may be some local lymph nodes involved. So if things are a little bit bigger and there might be a few lymph nodes near the tumor that appear to be involved, that would make it a stage two. So initially, my first thought with these early stage patients are, can I get them to a surgeon? And what that means is that are the spots where the disease appears to be, does that appear amenable to surgical excision? And also, is my patient healthy enough to do this surgery? Often, these are questions I discuss together with a surgeon. And they often, you know, make the final decision of whether or not the surgery is there is an option for these patients. So for example, if they can't have a surgery because they're in poor health otherwise or for other reasons they can't undergo that therapy, then also we can consider sending them to a radiation oncologist because local ablative radiation therapies are also quite good at controlling the area of cancer and also in bringing about cure. But the gold standard really is surgery. Once the surgery is done, another important factor as to whether or not any additional treatment is done is the pathology report and whether or not lymph nodes near the middle of the chest are involved. Because if lymph nodes are involved or the tumor might be bigger than we even thought initially, that's when I would have a discussion with a patient about chemotherapy after the surgery or adjuvant chemotherapy. So before the break, Dr. Shank, we we talked about your treatment approach for stages one and two non-small cell lung cancer, but what if a patient's disease progresses to stage three or four? How would that change your approach? So if a patient is stage three, that becomes very complex because one patient stage three is not necessarily another patient's stage three. And what I mean by that is that there are so many different ways patient can have a stage three disease, they can have a really large primary tumor and push them into a stage three category because it's involving other structures in the chest, or they can have a stage three cancer, not because the the main tumor is so large, but because there's a lot of lymph nodes in the middle of the chest involved. For stage three, I still try to figure out a way with, of course, my, my surgical colleagues can we get this patient to surgery? That's still a very important piece of curative intent therapy. But if they're not able to undergo surgery just because of where the location of the tumor is or other health factors, we we often treat them with a combined approach of chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And then after that combined approach, we give them immunotherapy in terms of stage four disease. Now, that's a different uh, approach. Some of the information that's very important to me as a medical oncologist taking care of patients with stage four or metastatic disease is, you know, number one, where exactly is the disease located? Are they stage four because they have a single lesion in the brain or are they stage four because they have multiple uh, tumor areas throughout you know, throughout the bone. 
That's sort of some of the initial assessment that I do. And then another piece of information that's very important is a number of studies we do on the tumor tissue itself. So in non-small cell lung cancer, in about 20% of the patients who are new diagnosis, I have the opportunity to actually just give them a pill because there are certain genetic molecular drivers that are responsive to uh, targeted therapies that we have available. Also, what's important to know is their status for immunotherapy, and that's something we look for on the tumor tissue itself because there are certain patients where I don't treat them with chemotherapy up front. So those, those patients that have the, the, the genetic changes that I can give them the pill, and there's also patients where I can give them immunotherapy alone, and that's dependent on what information we can get from the tumor tissue. Obviously, non-small cell lung cancer is a difficult disease to manage, and you've just been talking about the complexities of, of managing it. Um, you know, so how can we keep our patients really at the center of our approach to care? I think it's very important for patients to know what exactly do they have, meaning, you know, this is lung cancer, what type of lung cancer it is. So that's kind of the first piece. The second important thing that I want patients to know is what therapies are available because there are a multitude of potential treatments that I can offer to patients that are very, very different but are personalized based on what I see from the tumor tissue. And I think the final piece, and this is often where patients do or do not want to know the answer, but I always offer to tell them how effective the therapies are that I could potentially give them. And often this this, uh, discussion becomes about survival and prognosis. You know, sometimes patients really want to know what it is they're facing in terms of is this curative or non-curative. And if this is non-curative, you know, how long do I expect them to live? But sometimes it's just not something they want to get into right away, which is, you know, which is reasonable. These answers and these questions are something I'm always happy to revisit during a patient's disease course and when I take care of them, you know, and we can, and I always tell them, you know, this isn't your only opportunity to ask questions. You, You know, you'll see me every couple of weeks. I'm happy to readdress these things at any time. As patients go through therapies, I think what's also really important is uh, recognizing that as a medical oncologist, we are, do our best to get our, our patients to live as long as possible and as, as well as possible. And sometimes that means initiating discussions where we talk about, you know, our, you know, therapies really aren't doing what we would hope and having a very honest and compassionate discussion about, you know, what to expect from therapies as we get kind of through, you know, first line, second line, third line, and offering the option of uh, maximizing quality of life for as long as possible by implementing palliative care. Well, that's been really helpful, certainly for me as a family doctor, and I think I, I know that all of our uh, healthcare providers listening and others will find this very helpful. You know, before we close, Dr. Schenk, are there any other insights that you would like to share with our audience today? Definitely. Lung cancer you know, deservedly so, is a very scary diagnosis, especially if it's a patient that you've been, um, you know, uh, uh, taking care of and going through life with 
in a sort of a primary care situation. And there are, on the medical oncology side, more or less there's been a revolution going on. I have many tools to help your patients live longer and better than even five years ago. And so while it is a devastating diagnosis, it is very important that when the diagnosis comes about to send the patients to a medical oncologist to talk about therapies available because there are people, even with metastatic lung cancer, that we can help live, you know, we can help them live for years. You know, of course, that's not everyone, and it's, but it's a significant proportion of patients that we can help for a long time. So that's the first piece of information I'd like to convey. And finally, the last point, and this is, this is the line I like to use for everyone, you can forget everything else I've said, but please talk to your patients about screening for lung cancer. It's the, I, I have many tools in my toolbox, but I cannot cure, in general, I cannot cure patients with lung cancer. The people with the real tools to cure lung cancer early on are, are those who screen for lung cancer. Even You guys can do a much better job than I can. That's a great way to round out our discussion on the various factors that can impact our approach to treating patients with non-small cell lung cancer. And I'd like to thank Dr. Aaron Shank for joining me today. Dr. Shank, it was great having you on the program. Yeah, great to talk with you today. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle, and thanks for listening. The preceding program was sponsored by Lilly. Content for this series is produced and controlled by ReachMD. This series is intended for healthcare professionals only. To revisit any part of this discussion and to access other episodes in this series, visit reachmd.com nsclc. Thank you for listening to ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.